following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 26 of Morgoth's Ring, and I am pleased to say, by the way, that this is, according to my calculations and my confident expectation, the antepenultimate session of Morgoth's Ring. Yes, that is right. We actually are going to finish this book, and my plan is uh, to finish this book in three sessions, counting tonight. That's the plan, and I'm sticking to it. Um, uh, of course, after I made that plan, I looked at the calendar and realized that if I stick to that plan, that means we are going to start discussing Dante's Inferno the day after the United States elections. And that just seems kind of too perfect, right? Uh, I mean, just as everyone has been predicting, you know, the day after election day, we're, <laughs> we're all going straight to hell. So there we are. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, yeah, that's, the, I mean, James, I know it's too easy, right? I mean, the, the jokes are just too easy. So as soon as I saw that, I'm like, well, it's destiny. There it is. There it is. Um, Yes, the U.S. election and hell follows after, Stephen. That's just it. That's just it. Um, <laughs> Devorah says, I've already abandoned hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here, is the uh, the theme, <laughs> right? For <laughs> Exactly, <clears throat> exactly. So anyway, so that's the point. We'll see. We'll see. I'm confident. I'm feeling super confident. Um, tonight, we are going to get to talking about uh, Myths Transformed, which, uh, after the best of times, you know, the Athrobeth is, as I've said, one of my favorite things Tolkien ever wrote. I mean, it's on my very short list of favorite things ever. Um, and then right after that, we get to one of my least favorite <laughs> Tolkien things ever, which is Myths Transformed. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading this section, I feel exactly like Ted Naismith has depicted Hurin in this opening picture as looking. Um, uh, uh, gripping the seat of my chair, looking all raggedy, shrunken back in the chair and reeling and like looking like I just trying to endure. That's kind of that's kind of me <laughs> when I'm reading this section. That's how I feel when I'm reading this section. Um, but I'm going to try not to let uh, that get me down. <laughs> so desperate. There's a bunch of really fascinating stuff in this section, too. So that's really great. Um, I just um, can't handle it on the whole. Uh, uh, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll talk about that. Um, uh, before we get going too far, though, into uh, the discussion of whether or not we should just tear down the mythology and start over, um, uh, I wanted to do my final section uh, session on uh, the 10 problems in higher education that Signum University is the answer to um, uh, as we're coming towards the end of our fundraising campaign here. So um, today's so last night in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I talked about the problem. So the two problems that I'm talking about this week, the last two problems I'm talking about, I've saved them for the end because they're not problems that confront like they're not like in 
you know, fundamental problems in all of higher education. They are uh, problems that are endemic to higher education, uh, but they're not problems that like threaten higher education directly. Um, and the, the one I was talking about last night was the crisis in the humanities. And I talked about how um, as college has increasingly been not just, you know, this has been something that I think, you know, grew initially and naturally out of the uh, sort of the public impression of college, especially as the prices went higher and higher and the people who were paying the money for college and accruing the debt uh, to pay for college felt a more and more urgent and immediate need for a plain path to a return on investment uh, for that very those very great sums of money. Um, it has emerged that college has been more and more treated as simply preparation, not just preparation for the workplace in general, but training for particular jobs. Like you, you go and you get a particular four-year college degree in order to enable you to achieve a particular job that you're hoping to get. And you choose your uh, uh, your degree, you know, your, your, your major and quite possibly your entire college, uh, because you think that it gives you the best chance to, you know, the best, uh, preparation, the best odds of landing the particular job that you want. Um, I have, um, argued that, uh, there's, um, uh, there's there's some serious deep problems uh, with that uh, concern. Not, of course, that I don't think that higher education is a good preparation for work. It certainly is. Um, but the limitation, like to, to to take what higher education was and was meant to be, and to narrow it down to simply job training, um, is to lose a huge portion of what it was. And so we talked about uh, last night about the implications of that for the study of the humanities and the teaching of the humanities. And of course, as you've probably heard me talk about before, we have a new plan for the teaching of the humanities that's designed to address that issue here at Signum moving forward. Um, because, of course, the problem is that in that environment, right, if you accept the premise that the point of higher education is to prepare you for particular jobs, then there is no point in studying the humanities. Humanities are indeed pointless because there are very few jobs and very few of those high paying at all. Um, certainly not enough to justify the cost of higher education. Um, uh, so, so, I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't work for the humanities or rather the humanities don't seem to work in that system. But of course, the problem is that the humanities are in fact essential. They provide essential skills. They are the best way of teaching essential skills that absolutely everyone needs. They don't, you know, uniquely qualify you for any particular jobs, but they in fact help you broadly and enormously in any job that you go into. So the unshocking consequence of the de-emphasis of the humanities that has been a result of this mindset, and, and us, although, as I said, it grew within the public, it's been um, heartily bought into by higher education, um, and higher education has increasingly begun to organize its own degree programs and everything on that basis. Um, anyway, so yeah, as I say, the consequence of, of this procedure is not really shocking, and that is that, guess what? A lot of people don't have those skills that they used to learn from the humanities anymore. You know, when uh, it used to be, right, uh, it used to be that 
getting a college degree meant some things, right? If you had a college degree, if you had a bachelor's degree, it meant an employer could assume that that meant you could write, that that meant you had good critical thinking skills. Like there were a bunch of things that were, um, that were developed, that were understood to be developed, to be a part of what it means to be an educated person, to have, uh, you know, a college degree. And the thing is, this just doesn't happen anymore. This is not the case. Now, I agree. Michael's pointing to the fact that this problem begins in elementary schools. Yeah, the problem with the humanities and and not teaching these basic skills and stuff. Yeah, I agree. It goes way down. Um, uh, but it's it's it has been certainly exacerbated by the 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 challenge of um, you know the idea that the humanities this idea that the humanities are useless based upon this framework. Um, so yeah, so. College degrees don't mean that anymore. It just, it's not true. It is not true that just because somebody has a four-year degree, you can assume that they can write a competent paragraph. It's just not so. Um, And that is something that's really, even engineers and programmers need to know how to write a competent paragraph, right? Um, Email one and find out why they need to be able to write a competent paragraph. I mean, even if you only need it for communicating with your boss, that is important, right? But of course, there's always more than that. Um, but, um, But yeah, and exactly, Stephen, the issue there is you're right that all colleges, uh, I mean, it, it, there is a require. all bachelor degree programs in America are required to have a balance. You have to do distribution gen ed credits, right? So even if you're majoring in engineering or whatever, you still have to take some humanities credits. So there's still like, still some like window dressing of like the, you know, sort of the roots of where things used to be. Um, but they these things don't do the job. Stephen says, you know, in uh, in his college at least, these uh, classes were just easy A's that didn't actually uh, teach anything. Um, yeah, yeah, and even if they do, even if they're taught very well, what they tend, what I mean, if you take an English class, for instance, as your humanities, you know, Gen Ed course, what are you probably going to do? You're probably going to like read books and maybe get a better understanding. If you do well in the class, you might get a better understanding of the course of British, the history of British lit, right? But the course is not good. You're not going to emerge from that class with a, you know, you're not going to be getting a clear focus on how to write better, especially in the kind of con. I mean, even if you become, even if things go super well and you become a better essay writer, maybe you emerge from the class being like, boy, I can write a, a bang up essay on Jane Austen now. Right. But you know what? That is unlikely to come up very often in your engineering career. I'm just going to just spoilers right there. Like that's probably not going to happen right now. Again, is it applicable in different ways? Yes, but there needs to be more focus on that. There needs to be, there, there are more effective ways to do the humanities. I'm just saying, um, that are much more compellingly, uh, um, there, there, there are much more compelling ways, uh, to do this, to make the humanities really useful and powerful, even in that context, when they're just gen ed credits uh, for uh, for an engineering major. Anyway, um, so the outcome of this, like the way that this has been going over the last, uh, you know, over the last while, over the last, you know, 10 years at least, um, is that, um, you know, I talked last night about how we, our plans to, you know, fix and revitalize the humanities and the teaching of the humanities. Um, 
but we also want to help right away. There are a lot of people out there now who have not been getting the skills that they need. There's a big skills gap. And this is something that um, was, it was this perception that led me first to really begin to focus on the humanities issue because I kept hearing two things. Right. I kept hearing first, I kept hearing the humanities is in crisis. People are shutting down humanities departments and laying off humanities faculty. And like this is, you know, um, the humanities are being marginalized. That's one thing that I hear. And the other thing that I heard in a totally different context um, were within professional circles and like human resources circles and stuff. People saying, hey, like there's this huge skills gap. Like people can't people can't communicate anymore. Like people's emotional intelligence is terrible. People, you know, like this is there's this, you know, people don't have soft skills anymore what the heck and i'm like hmm <laughs> gosh i think there's a correlation call me crazy but i think there's a correlation here uh and so seeing that um seeing that opportunity um is uh is something that i that that really kind of galvanized me into uh, uh, uh really kind of exploring this and that was sort of the genesis of it we have of course we're not just going to wait to help the next generation uh, with uh, their humanities-based skills. Um, that's something, of course, that we are working on uh, with our humanities undergraduate program that we are planning. Um, but we are moving to work right away, basically, to help folks. And that's what our Signum Path uh, program is for. Um, it is a very different kind of um, uh, professional development opportunity uh, where you are taking humanities-based mini courses, um, not just you know, not just like watching a training video, right? Not just doing like a weekend seminar or something like that, because because like you can't learn to write in a weekend seminar. You you just can't. Like it's it's not possible. Um, you know, you don't you don't train. You, emotional intelligence and conflict resolution and stuff like that, you know, by watching a 30 minute video, you know, and then being like, okay, now I know how to relate to people. Like it doesn't work. Uh, these are things that you need to, to sort of study longitudinally to work through and work out and practice longitudinally. And the humanities have always been the best way to, to, to discuss these things, to train these things, uh, the best kind of laboratory environment, uh, in which to, uh, to work through this stuff. And so that's what we're doing with the Signum Path program. And, um, and this, so this is the other, you know, the other is, uh, it's a, it's in a sense, this is a problem that is a, a consequence of what higher education is doing. Um, but it's still, you know, a problem that is directly connected, uh, to the directions that higher education has been going. Um, so, and that is certainly something that Signum has already really, uh, you know, we've really, um, embraced and stepped forward to try to, uh, to help to fill this gap. And I've been really excited, uh, by the success of our PATH program so far. We've gotten wonderful feedback, uh, from the initial students who have been taking our first courses over these first few months. And I am really, really excited about moving forward with, uh, uh with that, uh, with that project. So, um, don't forget, uh, two quick announcements that I want to make because two important things happening this week. This is the last week of our fundraising campaign tomorrow night, Thursday night, the 15th of October, uh, at 8 30 PM Eastern time. I'm going to be doing a, a very important broadcast called Signum university who we are. I have been saying in these segments that I've been doing at the beginning of class over the last few weeks during the campaign, I've been saying that, you know, there, there are problems with the, with the 
with the the accepted model of higher education some serious problems that are like leading it directly towards a cliff right now um and signum has solutions to those problems i mean we we don't confront that where we have confronted and overcome those problems um our model is different and our model we believe is not we're not saying it's the only way to be uh, but we're saying that it is a model that is has proven itself, and this year certainly sort of in fire proven itself, uh, to be a very resilient model and excellently adapted to the circumstances of 21st century life. Um, and we are excited to talk more about it. I'm excited to show people what that's about. So I've been talking a little bit about the ways in which Signum is kind of addressing each one of these problems. In my session tomorrow evening, I'm going to be doing a uh, a, a, a focused uh, one hour discussion in which I just lay out the Signum model and I explain how we do all these things. What is this model that is the model for higher education of the future? Um, and uh, uh, and, I, and I, so I'm planning to sort of walk everybody through that. So that's tomorrow night, 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. Um, and uh, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. You can go to um, we're going to be posting the links on social media. The the link um, should be on the website, uh, signumuniversity.org. Um, so you should be able to get the links there. And um, uh, and then, of course, also and it's also going to be on the Twitch channel. So if you just go to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash signumu, uh, it'll be there as well. Um, then on Saturday is our webathon, our big, fun, annual webathon celebrating the end of the campaign. And uh, we're going to be doing several things uh, there. I mean, it's an all day event. Uh, I'm going to be doing events from noon to midnight on Saturday. And um uh, one of the things, of course, the 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 most important one, um, two two I want to mention in particular. Um, the first session of the day. Well, first I'm going to do a little introduction at noon. At twelve thirty, we're going to do um, a couple Signum Path mini courses. So if you want to see what. A Signum Path course is like and what it's about and what we do and what we focus on. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, little mini course snippets, little uh, half hour segments uh, from two of our path courses uh, from uh, 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 Sarah Brown is going to be doing a mini course from her nuts and bolts uh, course. And uh, Gabriel Shank is going to be doing a mini course from his influencing your audience uh, uh, course. So we're going to be doing that between 1230 and 130 p.m. Eastern time. And then at 130 p.m., I'm going to be doing my state of the university address. So where Thursday night, tomorrow night, I'm going to be doing sort of here's what we have been and what we are. Right. This is this is like the past and present of Signum University and the state of the university address. I'm going to be talking about the future of Signum University. And I'm going to show you, I'm going to talk more than I've ever talked before about our undergraduate program and what that's going to look like and uh, in the ways in which that's going to be different. Um, and I'm going to talk about um, you know, some of the other things that are going on at Signum. I'm going to try to paint the picture of what I see Signum looking like in two years and where we are planning to go and planning to head. Um, so, and yeah, Josiah, uh, both of those uh, sessions will be recorded uh, and on our YouTube channel for sure. Um, not the PATH mini courses. That There will be other opportunities to get other PATH mini courses. Those won't be recorded, but the um, the State of the University Address and the Who We Are event will both be recorded. Um, so I definitely uh, invite you to uh, attend these. To some, I mean, I know that the, many of you who uh, either who are, you know, attending this class live or who are listening to 
this recording uh, after the fact. I know that many of you have been, you know, with Signum for years and, uh, you know, following us for a long time. So it might seem a little bit odd in some ways to be like, why is he, you know, trying to tell us who we are? Like, you know, I know what Signum is. It's true in a lot of ways, but there are a lot of ways in which I think it isn't actually fully true, or, or rather in which there's some more, there's, there, there's a lot that a lot of people don't know about Signum. Um, there's, uh, Signum is the part about Signum that a lot of people interact with, in particular broadcasts like this, right? Like, uh, you know, our Mythgard broadcasts and, you know, Tolkien broadcasts and stuff like that, and our Tolkien courses in, you know, Germanic philology. It's a big part of what we do, but it's only a part of what we do, and it's only a part of our future vision. We're not ever going to stop doing that. Signum will always be, you know, the, you know, the, uh, this awesome, Tolkien studies program that it's always been. And I don't plan to stop, you know, doing these broadcasts that I do, but it's also, it has always been more than that. It has grown to be more than that. And it is on its way to being, uh, some things that are a great deal more than that. Um, and that those are the elements that I think a lot of people, even folks who have been following and supporting us for a long time, don't necessarily get the big picture of Signum. And, why we do what we do, how we do what we do, what really makes us different fundamentally, because a lot of that is behind the scenes um, from uh, from other schools and what this means potentially for the future of higher education. So uh, anyway, I just so I want to share that. So that's why we're going to be talking about that stuff. So I encourage you uh, the webathon as well will be uh, again. You can get links there on the um on the website, and you can also uh, just watch on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash signumu will be there all day, almost all day. There's one or two sessions where we won't be on Twitch, but most of them we will. Um, so uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, yes, Craig, the Academy page on the MythGuard website will be up, updated soon. Yeah, I, the, I've been, um, they've been waiting very patiently for me to give them more information about the uh, Inferno page. Uh, so yeah, 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 we're going to be doing that very soon. That's the plan. All right. Well, let us jump back into the text. I can't put it off any longer. Um, of course, the first part, we're still talking about um, the uh, uh, Manway and Eru stuff. And then we'll get to the Myths Transformed. Okay, so uh, this is where he's talking about the rebirth of the elves and how he has finally made the decision rebirth isn't going to work, right? He can't have the elves reborn as children of other elves. Um, so he's thinking through the new implications here. And this was a really fascinating point about the Valar. The new conception proceeds in outline as follows. The music of the Ainur had contained no prevision of the deaths of the elves and the existence of their houseless Fear, since according to their nature, they were to be immortal within the life of Arda. There were many such Fear of elves who had died in Middle-earth, gathered in the halls of Mandos, but it was not until the death of Muriel in Amman that Manwe appealed directly to Eru for counsel. So again, it's it's all about Muriel and Finway, right? That's that's the whole thing. Um, that's the thing that pushes Manway over the edge, and he's like, "What do we do with all these dead elves?" Eru accepted and ratified the position, though making it plain to Manway that the Valar should have contested Melkor's domination of Middle Earth far earlier, and that they lacked Estel. They should have trusted that in a legitimate war, 
Eru would not have permitted Melkor so greatly to damage Arda that the children could not come or could not inhabit it. So, and then he's referred, this is Christopher's summary, of course, and he refers here to the passage, uh, and Manway said to the Valar, this is the counsel of Iluvatar in my heart, that we should take up again the mastery of Arda at whatsoever cost, and deliver the Quendi from the shadows of Melkor. Then Tolkas was glad, but Aule was grieved, and it is said that he and others of the Valar had before been unwilling to strive with Melkor, foreboding the hurts of the world that must come in the strife. Right? They didn't fight Melkor earlier because they were afraid that it would mess up the children and they didn't want to do that. And Tolkien calls them out now in this in these later writings. He calls out the Valar for a lack of Estelle. They should have had sufficient hope. They should have known. Eru was not going to let that happen. He was not going to let Melkor thwart the plan to bring the children to the world. Right? And so, therefore, they should have been confident to attack Melkor and not worried about that. Um, and that is fascinating. So, yeah, Bruce asks, how can the Valar lack Estelle? Well, that's the really important thing, right? First of all, remember, so they're... they're if you think about Estelle and what Estelle means, there are several factors that have to be involved. Just say if, if some of these things, if any of these things is not true, then Estelle is impossible or inappropriate, like it's just not relevant, right? So one, you have to have some kind of knowledge of the framework, right? You have to know who Eru is. And you have to, like, if you, in order to trust in Eru and have Estelle, you need to know who Eru is, right? You have to have some sense, whether it's implicit or whatever. Sam isn't necessarily acting as a theologian, right, when he looks up at the star in the sky and realizes that there are things beyond the the, the reach of the shadow. Um, you know, that's not a theological insight by Sam. Um, and yet, he does, like, there is a reason that he has this instinct, right, this impulse. Um, he does have a kind of framework that, that helps him to see that he can have Estelle as he shows there in that famous scene, right? Um, so, and so the Valar certainly have this. They certainly, they know Eru, right? They know Eru, they know his plans, they know um, his character and what he's like. They heard him, they heard his speech after Melkor's discord, right? Um, so, um, so, so they, they, they know the framework. But the other thing that's required for Estelle, in addition to that knowledge of the framework and those the sort of grounds for trust in the framework, in, in, is also uncertainty. Uncertainty is also required. If you have certain knowledge, you can't have hope, right? Hope is irrelevant um, when there is certainty of knowledge. Hope only is only consistent with uncertainty. Uncertainty is an absolutely mandatory uh, condition of hope. And the Valar have that. They don't know how things are going to turn out. They saw the vision, right? They participated in the music and they saw the vision, but they didn't see the whole vision and they didn't even hear all of the music. They don't know all of how the future is going to play out. So they do. Estelle is required of them therefore, in their actions, right, in their attitudes, in their approach to their governorship of Arda. And 
they can fail in it. They can fall short of perfect Estelle. And they did fall short of perfect Estelle. By the way, um, this, um, uh, this is, um, uh, yeah, yeah. David is saying the same thing about, um, knowing certainty of knowledge uh, abrogates faith. This is my understanding as to why in the famous passage at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, or the agape chapter anyway, um, uh, love is patient, love is kind, all that stuff, right? Uh, when when Paul says at the end, you know, there remain these three, faith, hope, and love, right? Faith, hope, and agape. Um, but the, you know, but the greatest of these is agape. You know, he says that, he says that faith and hope will pass away. Right. But love will always endure. Faith and hope will pass away because the, the, the time will come. Right. As Paul has just said earlier, when we you know, now we see through a, a glass darkly, then we will see face to face. When you see face to face, when knowledge becomes certain, hope is not like destroyed. It's completed. It's finished. There is no hope and there is no faith anymore. Right. But there will still remain love. That's always been my understanding of that passage. Um uh, in, uh, in Paul, but, um, so yes, uncertainty is, is a, is a prerequisite. And again, the Valar have it, you know, the Valar don't have uncertainty about like the existence of Eru, right? They're pretty confident about that. They remember, you know, hanging out with Eru. So, uh, like they, they don't have, uh, you know, their belief in Eru is not an act of faith in that way. Um, but they do still have need of Estelle, and this is an example of where they fell short uh, in that uh, need and that and that need for Estelle, um, and that's fascinating. Notice how far we have come from, um, you know, those who say that the Valar erred speak with the tongues of Morgoth. Remember that? Um, <laughs> we were like, "Woo, yikes!" Uh, yeah, because um, this is a mistake. This has not even been on the, you know, uh, the the issue of did the Valar make the right call in bringing the elves over to Amon from Middle Earth? Um, that's been an open question for some time, right? Tolkien has indicated that the Valar screwed up there, in fact, and then that's exactly the choice that the narrator um, of the, I think it was the later Quenta, wasn't it, or maybe it was the Annals, um, uh, said like those who say that speak with the tongues of of Morgoth. Um, but um, uh, but still, you know, the, the idea that the Valar are f- not only fallible, but are on record as having failed on several occasions. Um, th- this was never on the table. This was never brought up before. Um, so this is this is a new mistake that they're making. And remember, it was the other mistake. It was the other the other issue of bringing the uh, elves over to Valinor that um that Eru was kind of uh, being, I said, and it's probably not quite fair that he was a little snarky about it, but remember when he said to Manway, earlier when Manway was like, we don't want to mess with the children, and he's like, you've not been slow to do that so far, right? Uh, when you chose to bring them to Amon, you were, you were meddling, weren't you? Um, uh, even though, you know, he was gentle and didn't, like, rebuke them for it or say that it was necessarily the wrong call. Uh, but um, but it was certainly an act of meddling on their part. Anyway, uh, so I thought that this was not only the addition of this as yet another thing that the Valar did wrong prior to the other one, um, but also 
the the contextualizing it as a failure of Estelle, I think is is really fascinating. Um, okay, now, uh, um, yeah. So David says that um, it is. It, it seems a shocking idea. David Atley was saying it seems a shocking idea that the music had no indication that elves would die. Um, there was no prevision of the death of elves and the existence of their houseless Fear, since according to their nature there were to be immortal within the life of Fear. So if the music of the Einar didn't anticipate that, as David says, then the music could give almost no insight into the main events of the Legendarium, right? That, like, once, like, so everything's off, right? Um, and I think David, in in some sense... Yeah, I mean, not necessarily, but in some sense, yes. I mean, that's kind of the point of the Discord, right? The Discord works through everything, and the Discord changed things, right? It didn't just add to it or whatever. I mean, it 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 it, it altered. Nothing came out the way that they thought about it going in, the way that they expected, the way that, you know, like the sheet music of Iluvatar drew it up in advance, right? But, of course, you remember Iluvatar's statement that nobody can mess it up, right? Nobody can change the music in his despite. Uh, nobody can thwart his ends. Um, and if they try to do it, they shall prove but his instrument, right? So um, uh, that doesn't mean that the picture that's being formed isn't the one that Iluvatar wants, right? He's still... Uh, he's still in control, right? He's still handling this. Um, but it does mean that the original vision, the way it was supposed to be, Arda unmarred is not, right? There is no Arda unmarred. It no longer exists. It never really existed, except like in theory, in the music. Um, and so that's another reason, David, I think, why Estelle is required. Remember the way that Manway described Estelle in his opinion, uh, his judicial opinion uh, in the Finway and Muriel case. Um, he defined Estelle as holding on to what we know should be and what we know shall be. Right? If you can hold on to, like, in the midst of Arda Mard, right, where nothing is turning out as was, you know, uh, as was previsioned by the music. Um, nothing is quite like it was supposed to be, right? And yet we can still have the picture. We can still know, either explicitly as the Valar do, or kind of deep down, as even Sam does, about how things should be, and to have faith in how things, have faith and have Esto in how things shall be, in Arda healed, or Arda remade. Um... And so, again, the Valar are in exactly that same situation. They're in exactly that same situation of having to hold on to the one and anticipate the, the, the second. And so, in that way, exactly the same Estelle is required of them. Now, it's from a different framework, right? So it's, you know, um, it's not necessarily the same um, sort of mental, moral, or physical act as... Uh, um, mental, moral, physical, spiritual act, um, as it is for elves or as it is for men. Um, but the, the basic concept is, is the same. Okay. 
Um, in what appears to be a second thought, my father then asked whether it might not be possible that the houseless Fea was itself allowed, being instructed, to rebuild its Hroa from its memory. And this, as appears from, the very, from very late writing on the subject of the reincarnation of Glorfindel of Gondolin, became his firm and stable view of the matter. So remember he had said when he, having decided against rebirth, um, you know, in an actual elvish womb, right, uh, as a way of uh, giving the uh, houseless Fea Ahroa back, um, he's decided it has to be rebuilt from the blueprints that are retained within the Fea itself, right? So one further step of this, then, is that the houseless Fea itself rebuilds the Hroa from its memory. And it was his later work, significantly later than this, um, on Gorfindel that led to that. He wrote here, Memory by a Fea of experience is evidently powerful, vivid, and complete, so the underlying suggestion is that matter will be taken up into spirit by becoming part of its knowledge, and so rendered timeless and under the spirit's command. As the elves remaining in Middle-earth slowly consumed their bodies, or made them into raiments of memory, the resurrection of the body, at least as far as the elves were concerned, was in a sense incorporeal. But while it could pass physical barriers at will, it could at will oppose a barrier to matter. If you touched a resurrected body, you felt it, or if it willed it, it could simply elude you, disappear. Its position in space was at will. How's that? Uh, no wonder Gorfindel wasn't afraid of the ring wraiths, right? He could become incorporeal at will himself by, you know, he, uh, he exists at once, uh, you know, on both sides? I guess so, right? In fact, if anything, the question would be to what extent Gorfindel exists in, on our side, right? In the physical world at all. He exists, uh, he occupies a position in space at will? Okay. All right. That's, um, and Bruce, I can't help but think of that too. Um, Bruce is saying, this kind of sounds like Jesus after the resurrection in the New Testament. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, there does seem to be some evidence that after the bodily resurrection of Jesus in the accounts in the New Testament, in the Gospels, um, his position in space was at will to some extent. He does a lot of appearing and disappearing. Um, you know, the disciples lock themselves in the upper room and all of a sudden there he is in the midst, not just in a vision, but in physical manifestation, telling Thomas to, you know, thrust his fingers into the into the scars in his hands and that kind of thing. Um, so. Um, uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. Now, Arthur, I agree with you. Gandalf suggests that any elf who came from the Blessed Realm, any of the Calaquendi, uh, would look like Glorfindel. But this suggests something different. Yes, it does. This is him, Tolkien, I mean, um, retroactively developing that concept. That, And I, I am sure that Tolkien is thinking of that speech by Gandalf explaining to Frodo about uh, you saw him for a minute as he is on the other side, one of the mighty of the firstborn. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you. It is clear that in context, when he wrote that passage in the, you know, in the 40s, 30s and 40s, he um, 
I say 30s and 40s because it's he revised that section a whole bunch of times. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, he he meant this is how the Calaquendi are. But I think in later years, he's shifting that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian, you are correct, I think. Um, Brian says that it sounds like the Fear of the Elves who don't die get to this point eventually anyway as the Fear consume the Hroar. Yes, remember, we were seeing, you know, he was explaining that the bodies of the, when the, the bodies of the elves become over time more and more dominated by their fear until they become invisible, intangible, right? Um, so, yes, it seems that one way or the other, right, whether death enters the picture or not, the destiny of the firstborn is incorporeality, right? They still have a Hroa. But it is, I almost said, a Hroa of a different movement, uh, which is like a horrible mashup of uh, uh, Morgoth's Ring and um, Out of the Silent Planet. But um, it, it's, it's, it's not like normal bodies, not corporeal in sort of the normal way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Josiah, we'll get to this Gorfin. I don't want to get into the Gorfindel stuff too much yet, but yeah, we'll get there when he is um, um, his late Glorfindel speculations. Yeah. Um, so yes, David Erbach, you are right that uh, Tolkien is still moving to the idea uh, of, in, of inconsistently incorporeal fairies as the eventual fate of elves. Um, yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and Josiah, I agree. I also think that the, you know, Josiah says the raiments of memory makes him think about Legolas walking the paths of elvish dreams. Yes. And think of course about the way and the significance of elvish memory, how memory, this is going to be there. This is what the elves are going to bring to the table. in the in the new heaven and new earth, right? When Arda is remade, uh, and the elves are drawn into the perfected Arda remade that the humans have already been living in, right? That the humans have already come to, through the resurrection of the body, having brought some of Arda with them and built this sort of spiritual bridge uh, for the, uh, the, the elves now to become the aftercomers and following them to the new Arda, right? All that stuff from the end of the Athrobeth. Um, remember, this was Finrod's theory, what the elves would bring to the table uh, there, the humans and, and brought them in, right? The humans were the bridge that enabled the elves to, to enter, to survive the end of Arda in the first place. Um, and what do the elves bring? The elves bring memory, right? They bring the memory of Arda, which will be an enrichment and a blessing to the whole experience of Arda Remade uh, and the perfection of Arda Remade. So, so yes, the significance of that memory. And I love that phrase too, Josiah, that, uh, that raiment of memory, right? Their bodies, they don't go away. They become raiments of memory. They become garments. They become, um, the, el the body of the elves becomes memory itself. Their bodies are made of memory and the outer bodies that you see are just, it's like the clothes that they choose to put on to their memories. Uh, and that's, that's a fascinating idea. Um, it's a fascinating idea. 
Um, <laughs> it does sound a little bit like quantum mechanics. Uh, Jocelyn, I, I think Tol Tolkien was totally anticipating that. That's right. <laughs> but I, I, I agree. It does sound a little bit like that. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Bruce says, well, the memory of uh, the elves allow them to rebuild Arda in the same way they rebuild their bodies. Not in exactly the same way, but in a sense, yes. Like the, the old Arda will be preserved. Like Arda will be preserved. So Arda will be reborn and the seeds of Arda reborn are like the memory blueprints that the Eldar will bring to Arda remade. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of, yeah, that's how, that's how it works. And I think that's kind of gorgeous actually. Um, one last point uh, from this section, and then we'll go into Myth Transformed, uh, about human purgatory. One further passage in the reincarnation of elves should be mentioned. In a sort of aside from the course of his thoughts, moving more rapidly even than his pen, as is so often the case, my father remarked that the exact nature of existence in Amon or Eresea after their removal must be dubious and unexplained, as must the question of how mortals could go there at all. On this he observed that Eru had long before committed the dead of mortals also to Mandos. What befell their spirits after death, the elves know not. Some say that they too go to the halls of Mandos, but their place of waiting is there is not that of the elves. And Mandos, under Iluvatar alone, save Manway, knows whither they go after the time of recollection in those silent halls beside the western sea. The sojourn of Frodo, he went on, in Eresea, then on to Mandos, was only an extended form of this. Frodo would eventually leave the world, desiring to do so, so that the sailing in the, in the ship was equivalent to death. Now, I think if Tolkien had lived to see the Peter Jackson movies, he wouldn't have written that last sentence in that way. Um, just a theory of mine. Um not having seen the literal way in which that would be figured uh, within the film. Um, uh, but, oh, come on. so let me just start with that. Um, in what sense does Tolkien mean that Frodo sailing away from Middle-earth in the ship is equivalent to death? It's equivalent to death in the sense it's a one-way trip. He it, He's leaving the mortal world. Um, just as when a human or hobbit dies in Middle-earth, right? They, they, they die in Middle-earth, their spirits and bodies are separated, their spirit goes to Mandos, right? And from Mandos then on, and then like whatever resurrection of the body happens, happens elsewhere, right? Um, that's the trajectory, that's the fate of humans and presumably hobbits as well. By the way, notice how, although he's not saying this explicitly, he's making it quite explicit in these passages that humans and hobbits share the same fate, right? Hobbits definitely are humans as far as the destinies of their souls and bodies are concerned, right? Um, so that's, that's very clear in this context. He's talking about human death and then says, for example, Frodo, right? So it's pretty clear that, that that's how that works. Um, but, um, anyway, um, so again, if the destiny of humans is for their, them to die, their spirits to pass to Mandos, and thence on to where the elves know not, um, Frodo does the same thing. So that's the sense in which his sailing away was equivalent to death. He does go to Mandos and thence out. He just stops by Toleresia on the way, 
Right, so he stops at Tolaresia on the way. His body and spirit are healed there, and in Tolaresia, he leaves the world. So he leaves his body behind. So Frodo's corpse ends up in Tolaresia, presumably buried or something, and uh, and his spirit then goes on to Mandos and so onwards. Right, so his sailing in the ship was equivalent to death in one simple sense that he is departing from this life, from this mortal world, and heading on to his next destination. But that picks up on one of the issues that he's kind of concerned about, right? The business about the halls of Mando serving as human purgatory as well is something that's in the published Silmarillion. That's uh, um, uh, the passage that Christopher quotes there uh, is in the published Silmarillion. So there's nothing sort of strange or controversial about that. But the interesting thing is what Tolkien was saying right before that in this passage in which his thoughts are moving more rapidly than his pen. Um, And that's the question of Tolaresia and Valinor. So it's been removed from the world post-Numenor, right? What does that mean exactly? Is it a physical place anymore? Or when it was removed from the world, has it been removed from, like, the world of normal Hroa? <laughs> right. Hroa, right? I mean, is that what happened here? Um, so he says the exact nature of existence in Amon Aresia after their removal, that is, after the removal of Amon and Aresia from the world, post-Akalabeth, um, the exact nature of existence there must be dubious and unexplained. Do you have a body? So an elf who gets on the ship and sails across the ocean and moves into Tolaresia, do they just bring their body with them like normal? What about the elves who are there? What about the Vanyar still in Amman? Do they have Hroa still? If so, how? Because they're not really in the world anymore, right? So he's not resolving that question. He's only raising that question and saying it must be kept unexplained. That after uh, Valinor and Tolaresia are removed from the world, they enter this uncertain state, this uncertain um, <laughs> Jocelyn sort of quantum state, right? Like are they, uh, they could be uh, pure Fea, they could have Froa, right? Uh, you have to observe them in order to see, and only Frodo has observed them, and he didn't come back to tell us. Um, so. So that's where he starts, right? And then, of course, that raises the important question, how can mortals go there at all? How is it that Frodo could possibly take a ship, get on a ship in his body, right, in his hobbity body, and get off, the, disembark from that ship in Tolaresia in that body when he's going to a place which is not necessarily in the world in a literal sense anymore? Um it's a mystery. So again, in this sense, sailing in the ship was equivalent to death. So in this way, there's no return back across the lost road, right? There's no, there's the, 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 the straight road is a one way street, right? You can't, you can't come back to, to come back would be like a resurrection, right? Um, which is unusual. Exactly. They're Schrodinger's Alps. That's just it. That's just it. Um, uh, so, um, um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, that's, um, 
that's why he's talking about the sailing being equivalent to death. Because in sailing in the ship and going to Tolaresia, he did, in fact, leave the mortal world. Like, he's out of the world. Um, he's, he's, he's no longer around. He's not in Mandos yet. He still has his body, kind of, somehow, dubiously and unexplainedly <laughs> still has it, right? So it, that's way unknown, right? It's really uncertain. But um, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, that's... Um, um, right. Well, Stephen, you're right. In Christian theology, of course, there is a resurrection of the body in heaven, um, despite the fact that it's not of our current world. So why should another spiritual realm be different? That's a good question. But remember, he's... Res- Tolkien has created, in the removed Amon and Tolaresia, Tolkien has created a middle space that doesn't exist in Christian theology, right? There's earth, there's heaven, uh, there's the resurrection of the body, right? But there's not Amon, right? Which is in between, and neither one, exactly. Um, and the resurrection of the and the, the the resurrection of the body is spoken for, right? That's happening, but that uh, that doesn't happen in Amon, right? That has been already defined, and it is defined as what happens to humans after purgatory, right? After they leave Amon and they go to wherever they go, right? Heaven, presumably, something like that. Um, well, after purgatory, you would certainly go to heaven because that's how purgatory works. Um, those who make it to purgatory go on to heaven, as a rule. Um, 100% of the time. Uh, so anyway, that's... Um, uh, so again, there's there's already... There's already a place where the resurrection of the body fits in that picture, right? Um, and it's not Amon. So that's why it's still dubious and unexplained. Um, uh, right. And exactly as Josiah says, it's not in heaven per se that uh, the resurrection happens, uh, but in the new earth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Jesus' ascended body being the exception. Sure. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Brian, excellent question. Are Amon and Aresia technically part of Arda post-Numenor? Um, I think, Brian, the answer to that is dubious and unexplained. Uh, so, in the one sense, yes, because elves live there, and elves are coterminous with artists. You know, elves are bound to artists, so uh, the simplest answer would be, sure, definitely part of Arda. But in what sense, part of Arda, right? You know, and, and you know, it, it's that's where the dubious, that's where the unexplainedness comes in, is what exactly, what is the nature of that connect, of the relationship between Amon and Arda anymore? Um, because it doesn't seem to be the same that it used to be. Um, its removal is not a merely physical removal, right? There's not, you know, you, the, 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 the straight road is not an escape velocity trajectory to a satellite, right? It's not that kind of removal. Um, so... Exactly, Josiah. Valinor is not just in orbit around Jupiter. No, it's not. It's not. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's been removed in a more thoroughgoing sense than that. But in what sense he uh, has decided to leave dubious and unexplained? And to be honest, I'm OK with that. Um, but um, but anyway, it's uh, it's interesting. 
Okay. Yeah. Let's get to the transformation. Here's Christopher. In these writings can be read the record of a prolonged interior debate. Years before this time, the first signs have been seen of emerging ideas that, if pursued, would cause massive disturbance in the Silmarillion. I have shown, as I believe, that when my father first began to revise and rewrite the existing narratives of the Elder Days, before The Lord of the Rings was completed, he wrote a version of the Ainuindale that introduced a radical transformation of the astronomical myth, but that for that time he stayed his hand. But now, as will be seen in many of the essays and notes that follow, he had come to believe that such a vast upheaval was a necessity, and that the cosmos of the old myth was no longer valid. And at the same time, he was impelled to try to construct a more secure theoretical or systematic basis for elements in the Legendarium that were not to be dislodged. With their questionings, their certainties giving way to doubt, their contradictory resolutions, these writings are to be read with a sense of intellectual and imaginative stress in the face of such a dismantling and reconstruction, believed to be an inescapable necessity, but never to be achieved. This is a wonderful summary uh, by Christopher here. Um, so he has decided, he has decided that um, it has to be. It has to be. He has to do it. He cannot, he has said like Thran of old, it cannot be born. I can't follow through. I cannot perpetuate the funny old myths of my younger days when I wrote funny stories about the, you know, Valar shaping the moon from the flower of Telperion and dropping it and bruising it. And that's why the moon has spots like he can't um, he can't go on that way. Right. He is trying to build as we've been seeing a sort of a systematic theology, a system that works um, consistently from one end to the next, and those ideas, those old mythological concepts of a flat earth that looks kind of like a Viking longship, no longer, can't, that's, it, it can't happen, right? It is just, in, it's impossible. It's impossible to imagine that the elves didn't know that the sun was there from the beginning, Right, that they believed that the sun was made out of a fruit of the tree. Um, we just can't live with it. We have to go back and rewrite a flat world, a round world, and a, a sun from the beginning. Um, but as we've seen in the less radical stuff, you know, he's been doing a lot of this kind of uh, philosophical reconciliation all the way along. Um, but what we've been watching him do throughout Morgoth's Ring is he has those mythical ideas that he doesn't want to lose, right? He wants to maintain the myth while making it... Again, it's supposed to be a marriage between the two, as I've been saying from the very first class. Um, how can he do both? To what extent can he do both? And he decided briefly, um, after uh, uh, Mrs. Farrell told him to stick with the flat earth, Ina uh, Lindelay, uh, he's been working with the idea that he could pull that off, right? That he could still handle 
a lot of those, you know, keep a, a larger portion of the mythological material and still make it work uh, within the concept. Um, now, um, uh, yeah, yeah, Mrs. Farrell, that's it. Um, uh, uh, then, but now he's he's gone back on that. After all the thinking he's done, after all the th uh, the theology and philosophy that he has been developing in order to explain how everything works and how the whole system holds together and the entire like ontology of Arda and everything that he's developed, he can't go backwards. That f it clearly feels like going backwards in time to him. Now, as I said last time, there is one simple thing, and I, I feel like if... Sometimes people ask me, I don't usually give this answer because it takes a super long time to set up, but I can tell you guys. Um, my real answer to the question, sometimes people ask me, if you could meet Tolkien, what would you tell him? Or what would you want to ask him or tell him? If I could tell him something, like late Tolkien, right? If I could time travel back to like 1970 or 1965 or something like that, and... Uh, Maybe 1960. Can I go back as far as 1960? If I could go back and meet Tolkien of 1960, um, I would resist the temptation to say, um, relax about The Hobbit. You're not being condescending. It's fine. I would. That's one thing I'd be tempted to say, but I would resist that temptation because I only get one thing, you know, like a, an abrogated huon. Um, I would resist the even stronger temptation to say, Please stop what you're doing and finish tour, please. I would also resist saying that, though that would be an even more sore temptation. Um, and Bruce says, tell him to date all of his drafts for Christopher's sake. <laughs> Is that so much to ask? Put a date in the corner. Come on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, what I would say to him, I think, the thing that I would say to him is, let it go. Let go of the identity between Middle-earth and our primary world. Let it go! Let it go! Let Middle-earth be a fantasy world. Let it be a fantasy world. It's okay. Keep the theology. Let the theology be the same, right? Let the theology be the same. Let it be a what-if, right? A merely a what-if world which is based on, like, what if uh, the, you know, God, our God, right? The God of, 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 of the primary world, right? The God of, of Christian theology did it differently. What if instead of creating one rational race, he created two? Boom. Now what if? Now let's make up this a secondary world, like you said about secondary worlds, right? And just let it be. Don't try to reconcile it to our world. You don't have to do that. It's... The only reason that it is true, um, the only reason that it is true, that it's impossible, right? The you know the 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 reasons that he feels it to be a necessity to redo all of this stuff, it's based on that. I don't want to say unexamined premise because that's a presumptuous word. Like to say that Tolkien didn't examine this premise, maybe he did, uh, but. It almost feels that way, 
right? Like he is taking this one big, enormous step for granted. It's like he did. So um, I don't know if any of you have seen on our Twitch channel, uh, Sparrow Alden has been hosting what she calls Writer Space, uh, which is uh, an open open sessions for creative writers to just come. Like if you're a writer, come and join, like write with what's all right together uh, and, you know, talk, discuss our writing and you can ask questions and talk about it and get feedback and stuff. Uh, really fun, open sessions. Sparrow does this thing. She, um, one of the things that she noticed in teaching creative writing is that a lot of time writers are, um, they want to do something, but they feel like they can't or shouldn't. They're like, I really want to do this, but I don't know. So what's what Sparrow has done, she calls herself the permission fairy. And she's made a wand. She, she has a stick with uh, with like streamers trailing off of it. And so when, when someone starts talking that way in the creative writing context, when they're like, when they're like, I um you know, I don't I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd really kind of like to, you know, I, I sort of feel like this character should do this, but I'm not really sure if that's, you know, a good idea. You know, the sparrow will, will wave the permission wand <laughs> and say, I give you permission to do that. Honestly, I feel like like Tolkien needed needed Sparrow's permission wand here. Like, it's OK. Let it be a secondary world. Let it be a secondary world. It's all right. Um, I. But um, uh, <laughs> Michael says, if I could convince him of that, then he'd have time to finish two or win-win. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> that's, that's, I do think, if there is one thing, if I were given five minutes to talk to Tolkien uh, in like 19, anywhere between 1960 and, and, you know, 1955 and, uh, and, you know, 1973, that's, that's, that's what I would say in my, in my five minutes. Um, um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, um, I, I, we have, we, we don't, we won't, we won't see in any of the passages we talk about tonight. We won't see Tolkien questioning. That, even a little like it is a it is a it is a fact of life uh, for his works. And it's we just we just have to like accept that we have to we have to roll with it. Um, and, um, you know, it's. Um, uh, it is the way it is. But that in my mind, this is what's causing all the problems. Right. This is what is causing all of the problems. Um and uh, we'll see now. Giant ninety eight on Twitch. I I I I get that. You know, uh, Giant ninety eight says I think that theology is the ultimate reason why Tolkien won't go there. His theory of subcreation very much links the primary and the secondary world. Yeah, and I'm not saying sever all links, right? Again, I'm, I'm I'm it's I think it would be a perfectly acceptable act of subcreation as defined by Tolkien to say I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to create a secondary world, which is not which is different from the primary world but which is rooted in the primary world right i'm going to subcreate a world in which you know god and christian theology is fully operative but but it's different in at least one way right with the existence of elves and in others as well like maybe the sun was a late addition in this world it's okay um but um yeah Stephen asks would that be too narnia-ish for Tolkien I I don't think that's what he objected to in narnia I don't think that he has a problem with that um I genuinely believe 
Based on the evidence, it seems to me that what Tolkien primarily objects to in Narnia is simply its incoherence. He is he when he didn't write that much about Narnia, but what he did write about Narnia sounds like annoyance to me more than anything else. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe just bothered him because it's so different from how he thinks, right? Tolkien was like physically incapable of writing a story that just jumped from Greek fauns to Norse dwarves and witches and Santa Claus. Like, like he, he was just like, God, no. God, like, can we make a consistent world, please? Um, uh, that's what bothered him. And, and we said when uh, that's I, everything that he wrote about it speaks of things like that, that and how he like what Lewis was doing with those myths in some ways. Um, not the Christian angle, like the the. In Greek mythology, when goat legged gentlemen take young human girls back to their caves, it is not to give them tea nor even to hand them over to white witches. They do other things with them. And Tolkien was just like... <laughs> anyway, um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I agree, David Orbach. David Orbach says, show Tolkien a Dungeons & Dragons monster manual. Yeah, and his head would probably explode. T totally agree. Totally agree. Um, but... Um, Anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So anyway, Stephen, that's why I don't think that I, I, it's, it's. I don't think he objects to sort of the Narnia in, um, in that way. Um, but, um, uh, but, but, yeah. Anyway, okay. But nevertheless, despite what I would say to Tolkien if I could. That's not what he thought. So we are uh, faced with what, honestly, more than anything else, the reason that this section of this book always makes me sad. Um, there's some really fascinating stuff in this. I'm trying to diss the stuff that's in here. But it makes me sad because this section is like, this is the death of the Silmarillion right here. This is why the Silmarillion... Because the task that he set himself was so huge. And it's worse than that. It's not just a, the quantity of work, right? Um, I think he can tell, it seems from these writings, some of these writings that he can tell that to make these transformations would be to carpet bomb his mythology in many places. And as Christopher points out, he barely scratches the surface, right? The, as in fact, let me, well, it's the next slide after this. So let's just move on and we'll get to it. Um, here's um, Tolkien's comments uh, on this. And this is, Christopher cites this as what looks to be Tolkien's first impulse in how to handle this situation. It is now clear to me that in any case, the mythology must actually, that is the actual legends, right? The, 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 the legendarium that he's written. The mythology must actually be a mannish affair. Men are really only interested in men and in men's ideas and visions. That's why they screwed up the, elf, the elvish truths, right? And mixed it all in with human traditions. 
The High Eldar, living and being tutored by the demiurgic beings, must have known, or at least their writers and lore masters must have known, the truth, according to their measure of understanding. What we have in the Silmarillion, etc., are traditions, especially personalized and centered upon actors, such as Feanor, handed on by men in Numenor and later in Middle-earth, Arnor and Gondor. But already far back from the first association of the Dúnedain and Elf friends with the Eldar and Beleriand, blended and confused with their own mannish myths and cosmic ideas. At this point, in reconsideration of the early cosmogonic parts, I was inclined to adhere to the flat earth and the astronomically absurd business of the making of the sun and moon. Sorry. That sentence just hits me right there. Sorry. Okay. But if you can make up stories of that kind when you live among people who have... but Sorry. But you can make up stories of that kind when you live among people who have the same general background of imagination. When the sun really rises in the east and goes down in the west, etc. When, however, no matter how little most people know or think about astronomy, it is the general belief that we live upon a spherical island in space, you cannot do this anymore. One loses, of course, the dramatic impact of such things as the first incarnates walking in a starlit world, or the coming of the high elves to Middle-earth and unfurling their banners at the first rising of the moon. Yes, one does lose the dramatic, and I would say more than the dramatic impact of these things, one loses the mythic impact of such things. And we can see right away, right? He can feel the potential casualties. He is not exactly counting the cost in that last paragraph, but he is foreboding the cost that would come uh, in uh, pursuing this... Um, uh, uh, pursuing this um, uh, course, right? This course of revision. Um, but um, uh, so this, of course, is a perfectly kind of predictable Tolkienian attempt, attempt at a solution, right? Great. The myths aren't wrong because the elves were wrong. The fact that the Silmarillion says that the sun and moon were made from the fruit and flower of Laurelin and Telperion does not mean that the elves themselves were ignorant of the fact that the sun was there all the time. It's instead evidence that the textual tradition of the Silmarillion is derived from the human tradition from Numenor through Arnor and Gondor and therefore has been incorporates elements of mannish myths and cosmic ideas. So, it's fine. It's fine. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. David Erbach, uh, in, in, when I was reading this passage, was reminded of that wonderful line from Firefly uh, when Wash says, that sounds like science fiction. And Zoe says, honey, we're on a spaceship. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, David wants to say, Tolkien, this is fantasy. You're writing magic and myth. Uh, you can ignore Copernicus if you really want to. Um, it's, it's, it's like a permission fairy. Wave the wand. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, 
what's interesting to me? The most interesting thing to me is that he does not seem to follow up this. He comes close in this passage to giving himself permission, right? Permission to do what he wants to do. Even if he's not willing to say, you know what, people, get over it. It's not our world. The sun wasn't there the whole time. Live with it, right? He could say that. He could say that. I would give him permission to say that. But even if he's not going to say that, he could say this. He could say, these are mannish myths. Cool, which means I can carry on. I can carry on telling the stories that I want to tell. I can tell the story about, you know, Karina, the story that you love so much about the dropping of the flower of the moon and the bruising of the flower of the moon, right? Why not? You, you can just, you can, all you have to do is write a disclaimer, write a new frame, right? Write a new frame in which the elf is saying, dude, <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> or what, you know, have like an elf, an elvish marginal commentary wrong again, right? I mean, whatever, if you have to, you can, but to say, hey, any apparent, you know, if if there are any, you know, you could write in a foreword to this, right, in a preface, like, it will be noticed that at many points, the, you know, the, the, the mythology that has come down to us um, is inconsistent with what, you know, the, uh, the Valar and the elves themselves would surely have known to be the real truth of, of, of the, you know, the, the matter and the history of the cosmos and the nature of the cosmos. But, you know, so, so places in the narrative where there seems to be a discrepancy between what is known to be true and, what well, you know, is attributable to these mannish myths and cosmic ideas that influence the text, right? And then, having written that preface, off you go, right? Do your thing! Write myth! And, uh, you know, and it's fine. But, of course, that's... Um, not the frame. <laughs> He'd have to have changed the frame. Remember, the frame has always been, he's trapped. He's trapped himself from before because the frame was always, these are the true stories coming down from the elves, right? He started writing this in order to give England its mythology, the true mythology that's been garbled by, you know, the the French and the, the Celts and especially the French and uh, has, you know, come down to us only in these, uh, in these bastardized versions. This is the true fairy tradition, right? Through Alfwina and, you know, Ariel, who becomes Alfwina, right? And, and brought back. So since like the core mythological frame concept of this text was these are the real stories from the elves. He doesn't give himself permission to follow this line and just say, well, man is tradition. Yep. Well, yep. Anything you disagree with is just yep, those pesky traditions, but you know, it's, we can still unravel, you know, you can still, when you're looking at it, you can, let's do an appendix. I agree, Jocelyn, let's have a nice appendix where he then writes and tries to unravel. Like, here's what the true Elvish myths are, you know, probably, know that this is, this is almost certainly an Elvish story. And yet it's, it's, it's clear, you know, through this, you know, from based on this textual evidence, we can see that this was probably an addition by blah, 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 could totally do that, right? Could totally do that. Um, but, um, it's, um, it's, but he doesn't, 
he doesn't, he won't let go. He won't cut the umbilical cord to the primary world, nor will he even let the myths be mannish myths. Even having suggested this, he won't do it, right? So Christopher draws the following somewhat depressing conclusion. It is at any rate clear, for he stated it unambiguous and, and unambiguously enough that he had come to believe that the art of the sub-creator cannot or should not attempt to uh, extend to the mythical revelation of a conception of the shape of the earth and the origin of the lights of heaven that runs counter to the known physical truths of his own days. You cannot do this anymore. Don't get it, Tolkien. Don't see it. And this opinion is rendered more complex and difficult of discussion by the rise in importance of the elder and lore master of Amon, whose intellectual attainments and knowledge must preclude any idea that a false astronomy could have prevailed among them. So step one, we will not cut that umbilical cord. We will not, you know, he, he, uh, he had come to believe that the art of a sub-creator cannot or should not separate the secondary world that far from the from the primary world. I still don't see why, but he... So that's thing number one and thing number two. He's not only continuing the these stories are handed down from the elves to men, uh, th- he's doubling down on it by building up the story of the, el- the elder and lore master of Amon. Um, the, uh, P- it's Pengalon's fault. It's Pengalod's fault, right? As the character of Pengalod um, uh, emerged. And uh, so it's not just Ariel going about the countryside, learning, hearing stories from elves who would tell him, right? We have elvish scholarship, right? Who And it is the greatest of elven scholars who has given this to him. And so therefore it can't be wrong. Like doubly can't be wrong. Okay. Um, so Christopher's conclusion is, it seems to me that he was devising from within it a fearful weapon against his own creation. In this brief text, he wrote scornfully of the astronomically absurd business of the making of the sun and moon. I think it possible that it was the actual nature of this myth that led him finally to abandon it. It is in conception beautiful and not absurd, but it is exceedingly primitive. Pengalad would not approve. Uh, it is inconsistent with Pengalad, and it, it's and it's inconsistent with Pengalad. It's inconsistent with Copernicus. It's got to go. Um, Carita yeah, says perfectionists are their own worst enemies. Tolkien is a textbook case. You are so right about that, Carita. The perfect is the enemy of the good. Tolkien, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I agree. He is devising from within it a fearful weapon against his own creation, and we see evidence of the initial barrage, the initial artillery barrage against his mythological stories in many of these stories. So, so let's start looking at them. Um. We can still see there still remains now beleaguered, right? Beleaguered amidst Tolkien's convictions that this is how it has to be. There remains um, 
probably fighting in the doorway of a mead hall somewhere that someone has already set on fire, uh, the desire to adhere to some of these myths and to try to find some way to reconcile the mythological stories that he has written and which he has always found so powerful with this um, highly restrictive new set of parameters that he is so firmly um, adopting. Um, uh, <laughs> James says, it's finally occurring to me that what I really wanted from a discussion of this part of the text is more like therapy or a support group. <laughs> it's so hard. Um, okay, so he says, the making of the sun and moon must occur long before the coming of the elves and cannot be made to be after the death of the two trees if that occurred in any connection with the sojourn of the Noldor and Valinor. If that occurred in any connection with the sojourn of the Noldor and Valinor. I mean, I, how can the, you know, so <laughs> let me count the stories that have just gone into the scrap heap from that sentence, right? Holy cow. Anyway, the time allowed is too short. Neither could there be woods and flowers, etc., on earth if there had been no light since the overthrow of the lamps. But how can, nonetheless, the Eldar be called the Starfolk? Um, he doesn't want to... Okay, so um, sun and moon before the two trees. Uh, no connection between the Noldor and the destruction of the trees. Uh, fine. Okay. Um, complete re you know, reconception of Middle-earth and what it was like and everything. But they still should be the Eldar, right? If they're not the Eldar then, like, they've got to be the star folk. How can they be the star folk and have the sun be there from the beginning, right? What can we, what can we do? Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly as James says, the etymology is what's important. I can let go of all the stories, but the word Eldar and its etymology, no, like, that still has to make sense. Uh, it's, it's a, it's like, it's like a piece of driftwood to cling to right in the shipwreck here. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, David, you're right. You see that Tolkien had exactly the same, uh, thought that we did when doing film film season one. What are the elves going to eat? Uh, what could possibly be growing, uh, in Middle Earth during the sleep of Yavanna and, uh, and, uh, uh, and you know, how, how would that, uh, how would that work? Yeah. It doesn't work when you try to picture it in that way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> as Josiah says, as the languages gave birth to myth, so they will be its bastion. Yes, the, the final fortress from which the myth will be defended will be uh, the, the language. Exactly. Um, more. Varda, therefore, as one of the great Valar of Arda, cannot be said to have kindled the stars. I mean, obviously. As an original subcreative act. Not at least the stars in general. The story, it seems, should follow such a line as this. The entry of the Valar into Arda, into Ea at the beginning of time. The choosing of the kingdom of Arda as their chief abiding place by the highest and noblest of the Ainur to whom Iluvatar had intended to commit the care of the Eruhini. Um, okay, so, uh, so, 
So step one, they enter into Ea, which is the universe, right? And then they choose a solar system in the universe. And they're like, we name this the kingdom of Arda, right? Okay. Um, because Iluvatar is going gonna, is gonna to deliver the Eruhini, the, the, the children of Iluvatar, to this kingdom, to this solar system. Okay, fine. Manwe and his companions elude Melkor and begin the ordering of Arda. So Melkor has to play hide-and-seek throughout the known universe, trying to figure out... This sounds like a... This sounds like a, a, a Star Trek Voyager plot arc, right? Uh, you know, Melkor searching throughout the known universe to try to find which star system uh, the, uh, the, the Valar are hiding on, hoping he won't notice them, right? But Melkor seeks for them, and at last finds Arda and contests the, kin the kingship with Manwe. Um, yeah, David says Melkor was the original Borg. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And we're hoping he wouldn't find our star system for some time. But unfortunately, thanks to Q, we blundered into him. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> Josiah now wants a Melkor hunting through Ea montage. Yeah, that would be really funny, especially Josiah, if we mashed it up with like Star Trek and Star Wars worlds. Right. You know, we have, uh, you know, Melkor descending in fire onto like Tatooine and being like, nope, wrong place. Right. And he's got to go. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's, of course, how Tatooine became so, you know, sunblasted, obviously. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, see, I'm trying to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to keep up my spirits <laughs> as we're talking about some of this stuff. Um, okay, okay. Um, this period will roughly correspond to supposed primeval epochs before Earth became inhabitable. Uh, a time of fire and cataclysm. Melkor disarrayed the sun so that at periods it was too hot and at others too cold. Whether this was due to the state of the sun or alterations in the orbit of the Earth need not be made precise. Both are possible. Okay, so the initial battles with the... So we're mapping this onto like a theoretical, you know, um, geological history of Earth, right? Okay. Um, okay. Um... So, uh, yeah. Okay. We're rolling with it, Tolkien. We're rolling with it, and we're coming back to... Right, okay. Okay. But after a battle, Melkor is driven out of Earth itself. The first battle. He finds he can only come there in great secrecy. So they sneak... The Valar sneak there first, hiding from him. Then he gets there. Then they fight, and he's driven away. And then he sneaks back into the world. Right? He finds he can only come there in great secrecy at this time. He begins first to turn most to cold and darkness. His first desire and weapon had been fire and heat. It was in the wielding of flame that Tolkas, originally Vala of the Sun. All right, now Tolkas is the Vala of the Sun, which paradoxically was there from the beginning, except not in the. I don't. Anyway, I'm rolling. We're rolling with it. Um, so Tolkas wields flame now and defeated him in the first battle. So Tolkas with fire. His first weapon, Melkor's first weapon, had been fire and heat. But then Tolkas comes in and is like, oh, you want some fire? I got fire for you right here. Right. I'm the Valor of the Sun over here. Let's bring the fire. Right. And he kicks him out. And so Melkor's like, um, 
on second thought, I'm going to try cold and darkness. And so he comes in at night and in to the north in winter during very long uh, nights. Uh, it was after the bat after the first battle that Varda set certain stars, not all the stars, right? They were already there. Certain stars as ominous signs for the dwellers in Arda to, to see. Can I just say if it seems to me that if Varda is capable of subcreating certain stars, why is she not able to subcreate the other stars? Is there something intrinsically more or less star-like about the stars that she does subcreate when she does that? Is it not the subcreation of the stars themselves, but merely their organization that she is doing? So, like, she is moving stars in the firmament? She's budging these other suns in order to create the constellations from the vantage point of the Earth? Um, maybe that's it. Um, I, uh, I, I don't... <laughs> Karina has decreed her intention not, in fact, to roll with it. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Um, yeah, exactly. Nancy, you were just suggesting the arrangement rather than subcreation of uh, of of the stars. <laughs> exactly, Josiah says Betelgeuse needs to be fifteen parsecs to the left. Can we? No, no, a little bit more. Wait, perfect. Right, right, right there. Right there. Keep it there. From here, it almost kind of looks like a warrior. Um, uh, yes, yes, exactly. Um, Nancy, it's possible that she's moving the Earth. Right, in order to line it up properly with the stars that were there, that's a little bit less drastic in some ways, perhaps. Okay, I could, it's, uh, maybe, maybe. Okay, anyway, all right, going on. The Valar counteract this, to counteract this, make the moon. Ah, now we've got the moon as the physical satellite, right? Made. Remember, the moon was uh, Morgoth's space base, right, from which he was, like, raining terror down upon the world and chucking things and stuff um, in the, in, in I know, in the Right. Um, but now, now we're going in a different direction. Right. So the moon, the Valor making the moon as an anti Melkor weapon. The Valor to counteract this, make the moon out of Earth stuff or sun stuff, some kind of stuff. Who knows? This is to be a subsidiary light to mitigate night as Melkor made it. Right. So the sun was there, but the moon doesn't necessarily have to be there at the beginning because we're still in the formative stages of the earth. Like its crust is still cooling or whatever. So it's fine. We can mess with the earth. Um, so we can make the moon out of earth or we can borrow sun stuff or whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, so we can so so we can say in the beginning there was the sun, but there wasn't the moon yet. That's okay. And so since Melkor is using the nighttime, right, he's now concealing his actions in cold and darkness. We need nightlight. Right to uh, drive out the darkness and 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 reveal what Melkor is doing. Great. So we have a vessel of watch and ward to circle the world, but Melkor gathered in the void spirits of cold, etc., and suddenly assailed it. That is the moon, driving out the Vala Tilian. Tilian has gotten a promotion. He's a Vala. He's a Vala now too. The moon was thereafter long while steerless and vagrant, and called Rana, neuter. A uh, little linguistic comment there. Um, so Okay, so, and that's why it's, it's neuter, I guess, because its driver moved out. Um, so he's gonna 
Okay, so that's how it's going to be called Rana. Remember, it was called Rana because Tillian was a bad steer. Or, like, you know, he didn't do his job properly because he had a crush on Aryan um, in the old myth. So that's why he um, used to steer the moon badly. Um, and um, <laughs> Josiah says, so the moon is like a prison spotlight. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Just, I don't think you're trying, you're getting, you're rolling with the mythic spirit here. Let me just say, I, I don't want to just start mocking what Tolkien is doing here. There is some clear, like, notice how he is, he is, like, having accepted the framework, right? Um, having accepted the framework, um, he is trying to work within that framework to build mythic ideas, right? How can he invest this new framework with mythic significance? Uh, and he's doing that with the whole, like the significance of darkness and the coming of the moon and um, uh, the vagrancy of the moon and everything. I mean, it's, it, it kind of works, you know? Um, uh, it's not, there's certainly, I mean, we can certainly see Tolkien's, you know, mythic imagination involved here, not just to try to preserve the pieces of his earlier stuff, as we can see with Rana, right? We can still call him Rana, right? The moon. Uh, but, uh, you know, for a different reason, but we can still retain that. And explain why people came up with that other idea, why the Manish legends, you know, screwed it up and hobbits sing funny stories about the man in the moon, right? But, uh, uh, but you know, it's, uh, it's this is the real, the truth delivered from Pengalot of you know, straight from the authority of Pengalot uh, here. Um, okay. But then, wait, hang on. If Tolkas came from the sun, then Tolkas was the form this Vala adopted on Earth, being an origin Auron, masculine. So, when he was in the sun, he was Auron. Then he comes to Earth and becomes Tolkas, right? He's like, I'm reinventing myself and I'm going to be called Tolkas. But the sun is feminine, he points out. And it is better that the Vala should be Aran, a maiden whom... So he's pitching the Tolkas idea, right? We can't change the sun to be a boy. Who, who does that? Um, I mean, I, you know, that again, this is consistent, right? He'd have to change the Lord of the Rings to, to, to change that, or at least explain it. Okay. Um, that the Vala should be Aran, a maiden whom Melkor endeavored to make his spouse, or ravished. She went up in a flame of wrath and anguish, and her spirit was released from Ea, but Melkor was blackened and burned, and his form was thereafter dark, and he took to darkness. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Nancy says, I don't like the part about Morgoth raping the sun, I will admit. Right there with you, Nancy. Uh, it's a, a striking mythological moment. Um, but... Um, Woof. Yeah. Uh, that's, um, yeah, <laughs> that's different. Um, I do like the consequence for Melkor, Melkor being blackened and burned and his form being thereafter dark and he took to darkness. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, David, I agree. The, the story of Melkor raping the, you know, the maiden who drives the sun 
does feel closer to Greek mythology and therefore not really the flavor of Arda. Um, that's, yeah, I agree. But hang on, keep going. Varda has preserved some of the primeval light, her original chief concern in the great tale. The two trees are made. The Valar make their resting place and dwellings in Valinor in the west. Now one of the objects of the trees, as later the jewels, was the healing of the hurts of Melkor. But this could easily have a selfish aspect. The staying of history, not going on with the tale. This effect it had on the Valar. They became more and more enamored of Valinor, and went there more often, and stayed there longer. Middle-earth was left too little tended, and too little protected against Melkor. More flaws of the Valar, and we're going to push back their uh, wrongdoing to even earlier, right? Them going to Valinor at all is now the mistake. Um, uh, but notice... Um, notice... His, he is trying to preserve something here. See what he's trying to preserve? He's trying to preserve the specialness of the light of the trees. Remember that the, since the trees were the original light and the sun and moon were only derivative of the trees, they were lesser and, de and derivative. Um, they are the minor things. They are the diminished thing. The sun itself is a diminished light. The light of the trees was the real, pure light. That idea, that mythic concept, he's trying to... There's an, another, another, you know, fragment in the, in, the, in the shipwreck, right, that he's clinging to here. He still wants to find a way to make the trees connected to primeval light, separate from, to give them a genie... He doesn't want, the, he doesn't want to just reverse it and have the trees be derivative of the sun and moon because that the myth of the trees is totally gone at that point, right? Um, they're nothing but, they would be nothing but fancy decorations at that point, right? They'd be like torches, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, they'd be like lamps if they were uh, nothing else but that. Um, but um, uh, yeah, um, so... But here's the other thing that, apart from perceiving that myth at work, right? And no, notice, of course, how he's attaching it to Varda, right? He's kind of slightly demoted her as Kindler of the Stars. At the, at, at, she's at least the stage manager of the Stars now, but she's anyway she's still involved with the Stars, but but her role with the Stars is somewhat lesser than before. However, he still wants to connect her to the light, to the prime, to the and and we will see, in fact in uh, some future passages, that he's actually elevating her to some extent um, in response to Varda's role in The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, but notice the other thing that is... The, here's the other thing that's really interesting, to me, interesting thing to me in that second paragraph. What is the effect of the trees? The trees contain the only instance in Arda of the primeval light, which is good, which is untarnished in its purity and goodness, and indeed contains within it the power to heal the hurts of Melkor. 
That's how good it is. It is holy light that is put into the trees by Varda, right? And what is the effect of this pure and holy light? Selfishness. Sin, ultimately, right? The desire for these beautiful things, for the beautiful trees, for the beautiful light, um, leads them to be selfish, leads the Valar themselves into errors. They get all elvish, right? They get all um, uh, Lothlorien-like about this. David Atley, as you were suggesting, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, they want to hold on to it, right? It's so beautiful in Valinor, where those two trees are. You can get the sun and moon anywhere, right? Um, but only in Valinor can you get the trees. So we're going to spend more time over there. And this is going to lead us to neglect, to love Valinor so much that we're going to neglect the rest of Middle-earth, right? This is exactly what happens with the Silmarils in the Silmarillion. They're holy. The Silmarils aren't cursed. The Silmarils are holy. They are beautiful. They are pure. And it's because they are pure and they are beautiful and they are holy that they are desired. And it's the corrupt desire of those holy things that leads people from Feanor and Melkor on down to do horrible things. Uh, around the Silmaril, right? Whether you're Fanor, whether you're Thingol, or whoever it is, right? Um, so, of course, Michael, in this version, it would be Fanor who would be following their example, which, of course, Michael puts Fanor's fault on a slightly different footing, doesn't it? I mean, he's following in the footsteps. It seems inevitable, if, uh, you know, in this context. But, of course, we can see him doing here what we see him doing in other places, Right when he is just as we saw him, and we'll see this more in some of the passages we'll look at next time, um, modeling Melkor after Sauron. Right, we, we we've seen that in a couple instances. Um, he's written the story of Sauron and Sauron's fall, and so he maps that back onto Melkor as he's revising the mythology, so that the greater thing, which came first, is in fact following the pattern that he established by earlier on writing the lesser story. And the same here, right? Here now, he is shifting backwards, sort of projecting backwards into the trees, the story of the jewels. Um, there are not going to be civil wars among the gods. No one's going to swear any oaths, and, and there's not going to be any kinslaying among the Valar, I don't think, for the sake of the trees, unless you count Melkor, I suppose. Um, as kinslayer, I mean, rather, or, you know, kin, well rapist, I guess he is. Um, but anyway, whatever. The point is um, uh, the the story nugget that he is, the, the story germ that he's attaching to the trees here is a familiar one. It is a seed that has already sprouted and borne fruit in his other stories. And he's planting it again now backwards, earlier up a generation of the trees themselves and not just uh, of the Silmarils. And that's that's pretty interesting. Okay, it's getting late. I don't want to keep you late. Um, 
please join me next week. Please help me uh, to get through. Now, I will say the passage that's coming up about Melkor is really interesting. There's a lot that I really like about that passage. So we'll talk uh, a good deal about that. There's a little bit more, I think, here about the Varda, the Kindler, um, that we'll have to talk about first as well. And then we'll get to the Melkor stuff and some other things. So we'll keep looking at these fragmentary texts um, as Tolkien is trying to work through some of this stuff. Um, but um, anyway, thank you for joining me. Um, again, try not to be too negative about this stuff, but this is hard going. This is tough. This is this is this is this is difficult. Uh, so thanks everybody. Um, don't forget tomorrow night, uh, Signum who we are at eight thirty p.m. Eastern time, and um, the uh, the webathon from noon to midnight on Thursday. We're gonna do Tolkien trivia with prizes. We're gonna do um, we're gonna do a, a a a movie watch party. Uh, we're gonna do. Um, I'm going to do a Lotra thing. We're going to do a film film uh, performance. Come and uh, come and read uh, uh, passages from film film. Um, we're going to do uh, we're going to do we're going to do a, a dramatic reading of episode one of season four, which is the rescue of Mithros uh, 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 episode. Um, so you can come and participate and it's going to be a lot of fun or heckle the folks who are uh, reading. Uh, it's going to be cool. Anyway, there's going to be lots of stuff going on throughout the day. Um, but don't forget the state of the university address from uh, at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, that's one of the, the big features of the day. So I uh, definitely encourage you to uh, for that. Thanks, everybody. See you guys uh, hopefully later this week. And uh, if not, see you next Wednesday night. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.